Hello, it's Vikas Pota, Chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course, the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF. It's a great honor to be able to introduce this extraordinary panel to you today. We've got a senior philanthropist, former senior government officials, former cabinet members. We have two serving education ministers. And uh, we have a man who, at the age of 14, won second prize in the junior poetry competition at his school. That was, uh, that was me. Uh, so this session is about PPPs, public-private partnerships. And in particular, the question, are public-private partnerships really changing education for the better? I think many of us agree that government has to be on the hook for ensuring that every child has access to a quality education. But there's much less consensus about whether or not government should deliver that education itself, and that's what we're here to talk about. So for the purpose of this discussion, we're going to define education PPPs broadly as any instance in which the government works with or commissions a non-state actor to deliver education or ancillary services to education or to the education system, like teacher training, for example. This session is going to have three parts, a fairly standard format. First, after an introduction, each of our speakers is going to make an opening statement. And we're going to focus in those statements, if you can, speakers, on whether you think PPPs can ever work in education. And if so, can you give an example of an effective PPP that, that you know of from your work? And then I'm going to ask a few questions myself. And then we're going to open the discussion up to the floor for questions from the audience. And traditionally, it's at that point that at least two people uh, make extended comments that are really just plugs for their organization. So can you try and avoid doing that? Because we've got a great panel. It's quite a long panel. And we want to make sure we hear from them today. So one final thing before we kick off. One of our panelists is going to be speaking in French. Um, if, like me, your French is, is somewhere between comme ci, comme ça, and uh, terrible, then uh, I suggest you get headphones and you can have real-time translation. Is anyone here who can't speak French that doesn't have headphones? Raise your hands and if, if they... Wow. All right, lots of you. Wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. So can we have headphones passed around? I'll need one myself as well. Uh, and um, so Madame Camera will actually speak last of the introductions. And so uh, please do hand those around and we'll be able to hear her um, in a second. Okay, so without further ado, I'd like to introduce our first panelist, Minister of Education for Liberia, uh, since February 2018, His Excellency Mr. Ansu D. Sonny Sr. So, Mr. Sonny, can PPPs in education work? Oh, yeah. You, you, are we to take off now? You should take off. <laughs> Fly. Yeah, well, quickly, I'm going to take it from the perspective of outcomes because my statement could uh, take my four minutes, four to five minutes. So uh, when I run off there, then I can stop. Generally, we have uh, had an experience with the PPP now. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's about, what, three years going, just about. And there are a number of uh, targeted results that we, that we have seen and experienced. And we believe that under the current circumstances, the current financial constraints of my government, they need to have partnership in these areas of teaching and learning. We believe with what we've seen, with the experiences we've had, the number of students benefiting so far, the quality of teachers get into those classrooms, the type of supervision being provided, the type of educational supplies in addition to, to what we have given, the, the enhancement of curriculum to, for, for these kids. I think we, we, we shall continue with it. We have made our determination already, and I think it works. There's space, there's, there's space to improve it, 
And that space is left to us to discuss with the partners and see how far more we can go. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. As, as someone who's experiencing it right now, yeah. uh, to, to have that kind of advocacy is, is really interesting for us all to, to think about and discuss more. So um, next I'd like to introduce Jose Maria Anton. Jose is an ex-senior official of the Spanish Ministry of Education, where he served for 38 years in a number of roles, including Secretary General of the Lycée Espanol and uh, Department Director of the Cervantes Institute. And he now serves as Secretary General of Virtual Educa. Jose. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, hello, everybody. How are you doing today? We, as you know, this panel will last until 8 p.m. or something like that. <laughs> because so many things, important things to say. Yeah. I am the Secretary General of an organization called Virtual Educa, like virtual education. We do not make virtual, and sometimes we don't make even education. Uh, we were created 20 years ago uh, by the big guys, Organization of the American States, later on United Nations, later on World Bank. We work also with the G20, and uh, to promote innovation and education uh, through public-private partnerships. So probably we are the only organization in the world that were created by the big organizations to promote public-private partnerships. This, those are the good news. The bad news is, are, and after that I'll talk about that, that the world is changing. 2030, as you know, there will be one thing called exponential education. That is not education anymore. It's human capital development mm -hmm. for social innovation. Not for the innovation in itself, social innovation to solve the problems. And we are talking about artificial intelligence, first, second, Internet of Things. And third, we are talking about blockchain. And this has to be included in any kind of education, since probably kindergarten until secondary, post-secondary education. Because if not, our kids won't be able to work in the tomorrow's world. So let's talk a little bit also about that. Yeah. Thank you very much for inviting me to the panel. Thank you, Jose. And uh, next along, we, we have Mr. Abderrahman Ainte, uh, who's uh, now the Director of Strategic Partnerships at the UNRWA. And prior to this role, Abderrahman served as a cabinet member at the Ministry of International Cooperation and as a senior advisor to the President of Somalia. Abderrahman. Thank you very much. Um, and in time for when my name tag uh, arrived finally, so thank you for that. Um, uh, so I will be very brief uh, to talk about uh, UNRWA, the UN uh, Agency for uh, Palestine Refugees, known as UNRWA. Um, I believe to answer your question, UNRWA really epitomizes public-private partnership in a number of ways. One, it was established by the UN General Assembly 70 years ago to provide um, uh, services to Palestine refugees who were displaced in, uh, during the 1947-48 uh, original conflict between the Israelis and Palestinians. And, and secondly, um, it is an organization that today provides education to half a million, slightly more than half a million girls and boys in 700 schools. Um, and this is an education that uh, for Palestine refugees today represents dignity, existence, and in many ways, their only horizon to, uh, uh, to, to look forward to. Um, the uh, education that uh, UNRWA today provides is also supported by member states of the UN General Assembly, who continue to provide uh, financial support to the agency so that uh, these half a million um, uh, Palestine refugee children continue to receive the, the education they deserve. But also importantly, uh, we in the five fields of operations that we work in, in, in Gaza, in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, uh, but also in Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan, we do teach um, host country curriculums. Um, and so taken together, I think this, uh, we are sitting at the crossroads of what I would say is a public-private uh, uh, partnership in that we are not a private entity, we are a quasi-governmental entity. We are a UN agency, but also supported by private resources. Um, what I do now for the agency is to uh, mobilize resources uh, from private entities, from corporations, foundations, um, NGOs, and other partners. And I think 
for 70 years, we have proven that uh, uh, an agency like us could continue to provide what is essentially a government service and supported by a number of governments financially, but also sanctioned uh, by other host countries who are supporting us um, and whose uh, curriculum we're teaching. So I think when you look at, uh, at UNRWA from that perspective, I think we sit at the crossroads of, of uh, those many different players. Thanks, Abdurrahman. So that's um, PPPs in situations of uh, sometimes of, of crisis uh, and, and their particular role there is, is another whole area. Um, so next we've got Anna Bertman Khan from Dubai Cares. Uh, Anna's the senior technical advisor and has had a long career working in designing education and development initiatives across a number of organizations, including Médecins Sans Frontières, Plan International, the World Bank, and the UN. Anna. Hi everyone, it's really exciting to be here. And I'm so honored to be here with two ministers. I think they are here to teach us a lot today and, and I'm very excited to hear from them about what their learning is. We as the Bike Cares, we're a donor. So we fund various different partners who want to make sure that children living in poor communities have access to quality education. And when you are a donor, you're always looking for the best actor to deliver the best quality education as quickly as possible. I think all of us in this room, I I'm sure, share this sense of, of impatience. Um, there are way too many kids who are not in school and have not been in school since uh, the time that they should have started. There are way too many kids who started school, found that it gave them nothing, and they left. There are way too many kids sitting in schools learning nothing. And the, the, the trauma of being in school, let's say for five years, and you go every single morning with your little bag and your uniform, and after five years you can still not read a sentence. And you can still not do 13 plus 17 equals what. So for us as a donor, we're just constantly looking for partners who can make that difference happen and happen as quickly as possible because we don't have much time in the life of a child to get it right. So today's topic is very, very important to us as a donor. Our work ranges from the first thousand days in a child's life. There's a little person, I don't know how many days at the door there, that is currently getting the care that that little person needs from his mother. Uh, how can we support mothers and fathers in the first thousand days to make sure that they get the stimulation that they need in order to develop? We support partners at the pre-primary level, predominantly to make sure that kids have the cognitive skills, uh, social-emotional skills, the language skills to make it when they get to school. We support partners that provide primary education, and we support partners that provide secondary education. And in this work, we, of course, try to have some kind of system impact. And therefore, for us, the, the, the topic of who do we fund is very, very fundamental to us. The system, as per UN conventions and the human rights that we have agreed on as a world community, tells us that governments are the duty bearers. They, it is the government that's supposed to provide education to the children living in their country. We also know that some governments are really, really struggling. They're under-resourced, they may have gone through conflict. The, the very government, government might be contested by parts of the population. So to kind of say government only at all junctions is also speaking, I think, from, a, from an ivory tower today. Uh, we, as a donor, don't have the solution, so we're really looking forward, as the bikers in this room today, to hear many voices about what, where in the education system does a private entity, a non-state non actor, sorry, I think that's very important, where in the system does a non-state actor uh, make difference happen where governments may be too slow to make the difference happen, and we can't afford yet another generation of children to miss out. So where in the, where in the system can non-state actors make the best and the most important impact? 
that would be for us a key question to arrive at today. I'm very pleased to be here with you all. Thank you, Anna. Um, so the reason I use the phrase non-state actor uh, is because I think that the word private can sometimes sort of infer commercial and yeah. uh, a lot of these partnerships have a mixture of different types of, of uh, private party involved. So last and by no means least, uh, we come to Her Excellency Ms. Uh, Kandia Kamara, uh, Minister for Education, Technical Education and Vocational Training in the Côte d'Ivoire. And uh, Ms. Kamara uh, has held the portfolio since 2011. She's a professor. She's a member of the UNESCO Executive Board. She's co-chair of the Global Alliance for Literacy. And she is an African champion at handball. Mm. <laughs> so, Ms. Kamara. Merci, Monsieur. Je voudrais remercier la Fondation Valquet et les organisations de ce panel qui nous donnent l'occasion aujourd'hui de partager notre expérience, l'expérience ivoirienne. Il faut dire qu'en Côte d'Ivoire, nous avons une longue tradition de partenariat avec le privé, surtout avec les promoteurs d'établissements privés, parce que nous sommes un pays avec un fort taux de natalité, une croissance démographique très forte, euh, donc malheureusement, nous n'avons pas assez de ressources pour construire suffisamment de salles de classe pour accueillir tous les enfants qui doivent être scolarisés. Donc dans ce cas, que faire Est-ce qu'il faut laisser les enfants euh, hors du système parce que l'État n'a pas les moyens de construire suffisamment de salles de classe Ou alors il faut aller dans un partenariat avec des promoteurs d'établissements privés c'est l'option que nous avons prise depuis les années 90. Donc depuis les années 90, en Côte d'Ivoire, vous avez 10% d'enfants au niveau du primaire qui sont dans des établissements privés, mais euh, l'État donne une subvention à ces établissements-là, à ces écoles privées. Vous avez environ 50% euh, au niveau du secondaire, mais tous ceux qui sont affectés par l'État dans ces établissements, euh, l'État paye des frais de collage à ces promoteurs d'établissements privés pour donner les enseignements à ces enfants-là. Nous considérons en Côte d'Ivoire qu'il n'y a pas d'éducation privée. Il y a des écoles privées, mais l'éducation est l'affaire du gouvernement. Et c'est la raison pour laquelle le gouvernement fait le pilotage, le gouvernement fait l'encadrement, le gouvernement fait le suivi. Donc les enfants sont traités sur le même pied d'égalité qu'ils soient dans une école publique ou dans une école privée. Donc ça, c'est le premier cas de partenariat. Deuxièmement, nous avons euh, des relations avec des partenaires. Des partenaires, euh, je prends l'exemple de la Fondation Jacobs, qui a réuni en Côte d'Ivoire presque tous les industriels du cacao. Parce que la Côte d'Ivoire est le premier pays producteur de cacao. Nous avons beaucoup de, de, de nos populations qui sont dans ce secteur-là. Donc beaucoup d'enfants euh, sont issus de, de ces régions. Donc, euh, grâce à la Fondation Jacobs, dans le cadre d'un projet qu'on appelle projet Tech, TREC, pardon, euh, nous avons mobilisé, enfin la Fondation a mobilisé toutes ces industries pour nous accompagner. Donc, c'est un partenariat qui est très fructueux pour nous parce que cela nous permet vraiment d'améliorer les compétences de nos enfants, surtout dans le domaine de la lecture, de, du calcul. Et surtout, cela donne une chance aux enfants euh, dans le cadre, de, de, par exemple, des classes passerelles, des enfants qui ne sont pas allés assez tôt à l'école, qu'on qu réussit à rattraper et qu'on insère dans le système formel. Nous avons aussi d'autres partenaires comme euh, Brooking, JPAL, euh, IPA, Pratam, etc., dans le cadre aussi d'un programme que nous appelons PEC. Euh, bon, en anglais, on dit « Teaching at the right level ». Donc, euh, eux nous accompagnent dans ce programme-là. Enfin, nous avons un autre, part, un autre type de partenariat avec le secteur privé parce que depuis les années 60, la Côte d'Ivoire a, a pris l'option d'avoir un système éducatif, surtout concernant l'enseignement technique, mais la formation professionnelle. Mais récemment, quand nous avons fait le bilan, nous nous sommes rendus compte que beaucoup de jeunes sont formés, mais malheureusement, ils se retrouvent au chômage. Or, sur le marché du travail, vous avez des emplois. Ça veut dire qu'il y avait un problème d'adéquation entre la formation et, euh, et l'emploi. Alors, qu'est-ce que nous avons fait Nous nous sommes assis avec le secteur privé 
pour identifier les, les filières porteuses, pour identifier les besoins du marché du travail. Et donc, nous avons mis en place un comité de pilotage, euh, comité euh, vraiment conjoint, où vous avez six membres du secteur privé, six membres euh, de l'État. Et ensuite, nous avons démarré le projet pilote dans huit établissements. Et dans ces établissements, nous avons un comité de gestion de l'établissement, comité bipartite, euh, État, secteur privé. Et donc, nous, aujourd'hui, nous co-gérons la formation professionnelle avec le secteur privé pour que les jeunes formés répondent exactement aux besoins du marché du travail. Et je vous assure que ça donne beaucoup d'espoir. Donc, voici un peu les différents types de partenariats que nous avons avec le secteur privé. Donc, oui, le, le, le partenariat PPP est très porteur, très intéressant, très bénéfique, en tout cas en ce qui concerne la Côte d'Ivoire. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Minister. Um, well, so we've actually got a series of advocates in one way or another for, for PPPs in, in, in their appropriate uh, roles. Um, I'm going to move on to a couple of questions. I'll direct them to, to uh, each one of you, if that's okay. Um, Jose, can I start with you? Um, given it can be hard to define and measure education outcomes, How important is it that governments work with partners that are mission aligned with the goals of government? Uh, it is essential. Without that, it won't work. But still, let me put you a question. That is, this morning it was said that 250 million people all over the world did not, are not getting education. Mm -hmm. Okay. So governments cannot provide education for this 250 million, because they cannot. I mean, if they could, the first thing they would have done would be to provide education. But you know that in the next 10 years, 100 million positions of jobs will be lost, right? You know that, and this is the, you know, optimistic provision. There will be more than that because machines are taking over. You know that. I mean, I'm not saying it. Everybody knows that. So we are talking about hundreds of millions of people that won't either work or get any kind of education. Mm. So what do we do? But you know, and we know, that the new algorithms, and this is what it's called exponential education, may arrive to every single people with those new algorithms. It's useless in the middle of the jungle to try to teach people with these mobile devices. And for example, in Guatemala, there are more mobile devices than people. So let's think that many people has, at this moment, they have mobile devices. They can get individual education adapted to their needs. But you cannot teach in the middle of the jungle how to fish, you know, big fishes in the ocean. You have to spend the time providing individual education for these people. That after that, they may be able to be part of the, uh, of the, of, of the job market. If not, societies won't work. It's not just inclusion, and it's inclusion. It's more than inclusion. It's also uh, social development. And for social development, you need social innovation. Who is going to pay for that? One, one, one minute are the governments that are almost broke because pressing concerns about health and about education, are the governments going to pay the bill for that? Cannot, because it's experimental in some way. So a government cannot say, I am putting my money, example Mexico, to buy 900,000 computers, send it to the schools where teachers were not trained and where there were no content. And that's it. I mean. Five years after that, that's it. So you cannot do that. You have to imagine with the private sector an alliance for the governments, everybody together, trying to support each other. The other example, Peru. Peru is a wonderful country, lots of jobs, but half a million people do not access any kind of formal education or training. Half a million people in Peru. How do you do it? 
I learned a word in Brookings uh, last uh, September, that it's leapfrogging. And with that, I finished my. Leapfrogging means if you are in the 19th century, you have to be part of the 21st century, of the fourth industrial revolution. The only way to do it is leapfrogging. Why? Because if not, you will never catch up. So the public-private alliance is that. One example, you said, let's one example of something that didn't work. Huascaran in Peru didn't work at all. I mean, they sent computers. Nobody took care of that. The computers were lost. Nobody knew it. Good example. Uh, one of our partners is GP Group, having these pop-up schools that you could put together in four days. As the UN says, every year there are statistically 14 major disasters, earthquakes and all that. You cannot wait until you build a new school two years later. You have to have a school, or kind of a school, or community center to train the people, not only the kids, in five days. And in Angola, they have been doing that. In the border, Venezuela and Colombia, when the Venezuelans closed the border, we had there this school in five days for the kids that were from Venezuela being in Colombia. This is an example of good public partnership. But this is very specific. The good thing is this alliance I am talking about. Thank you. Uh, I, if I had a, a pound for every time I heard someone uh, complain about uh, one laptop per child or, or uh, <laughs> education I have something world, to say please, about that later. Please do, please do listen. It, it has never worked. Um, I went to visit a school the other day. There were 80 uh, computers that had been delivered to the school. And uh, we asked uh, the class, you know, how many of you have been enjoying computers? And none of them raised their hand. They've been uh, put in a, a nice computer room and kept because they were valuable. Um, so, uh, Abdurrahman, I, I know you, you had some thoughts on, on the same question. And, and particularly, if you could um, give it a bit of a, a, a twist. If mission alignment's important, how easy is it for commercial uh, private parties to actually be successful in PPPs? Um, well, I think what I would reflect a, a bit more uh, in terms of commercial entities is how they can support uh, entities that are providing education like mm. we are doing. Mm. Um, and I think increasingly, even in our case, we are engaging a lot of uh, uh, private companies to support our activities because they see that as a not only a public good, but an investment mm -hmm. in, you know, in, in, in the future of children and in the future of generations uh, whom they need um, in the future. I think one important dimension I would like to add to this discourse, though, is to think about uh, education for displaced people around the world, but more specifically for the population that our agency, UNRWA, is now dealing with, um, the Palestine refugees, a population of 5.4 million. And this can also be said about you know, Rohingyas we've heard this morning, but you can talk about Afghanistan and Congo and anywhere in the middle. When you have a, a population that is displaced, what you essentially face is uh, the, whoever the host country is, is either unable for resource purposes or, or, or unwilling to provide education. Then it falls upon um, entities like us to provide and to close that gap of education. And this is where I think the, the collaboration and cooperation then becomes so important uh, in terms of public-private partnership because uh, you know, even for a UN agency like UNRWA, which has been doing, uh, providing education now for 70 years for uh, you know, Palestine refugees, we still rely heavily on uh, resources from member states, from the private sector, from individuals, and increasingly now we are diversifying our, our sources of funding to things like zakat, for example, um, you know, where in some countries zakat is viewed as exclusively just for food and, uh, and other humanitarian um, issues, but other uh, parts of the world are interpreting the zakat funding more liberally and are willing to spend on it, on education and other, um, uh, and, and health and, and whatnot. And so I think what is important is uh, increasingly it comes down to resources. 
um, if states are unable to provide or unwilling to provide, um, now in our case, for example, you've got two million uh, Palestine refugees, nearly two million in Jordan, uh, nearly half a million in Syria, a couple of hundred thousand in Lebanon, and then well over uh, a million in Gaza and West Bank and, and Jerusalem. You have a huge population that is essentially stateless um, and have no state to provide an education to them. And so what we have done over the past several decades is to uh, tap into uh, partners, uh, Dubai Cares being one of them, uh, one of our funders and donors, is to tap into them and, and ensure that uh, in the absence of a political solution to a, what is probably one of the world's most protracted refugee crises, we come in and provide uh, quality education to, to Palestine refugees. And today, 700 schools run by 23,000 staff who are also Palestine refugees themselves who are teachers and, and administrators and counselors and anywhere in the middle. I think that is, in my view, the epitome of public-private uh, partnership. Mm. Thank you. I think um, you're sort of articulating partly there's, there's two reasons for PPPs. One of them is to leverage additional resources mm -hmm. from the private sector, and the other is potentially to to uh, leverage the, the provision and know-how from the private sector. Yeah. Um, so, Anna, uh, if a government is struggling to deliver education effectively, what makes us think that they could commission education more effectively? That's the key question, isn't it? <laughs> um, and again, it's an interesting one for the ministers on this panel as well. I, again, the work that governments have made to try to bring education to all their kids is, is commendable with very, very little uh, resource capital in the country, in, in countries like Liberia. Um, for, for us, when we just zoom out and look at the different models that, that we know of, and we look at which ones have worked and which ones haven't, um, this question becomes the key question again and again, where for us, we tend to see that if the motives of the government to outsource parts of their system or a particular component such as teacher training. If the motive is to ramp up quality and access and they find actors who share that motive, it can be very, very powerful. Mm. Mm. Um, if the same government who has a very strong motive is also either capable on their own terms, and I think this is a smaller job, it's a hugely important job, but it's a smaller job than delivering to millions and millions of children. But if they have the ability to put down the accountability mm. framework and shore that up with such firewalls that it's not gonna be subject to fiddling by a private actor who wants to win the contract, not on merit, but because of access to somebody in government, for example, if they can shore up that accountability framework, we see that there is some incredible governments that may not be able to deliver at large scale quality to every single child in their country, but who can, and sometimes with the help also of private, non, uh, private actors, create that accountability mechanism, the regulatory framework, if you get that, the motivation and the accountability framework mm. right, mm. which you need to do first, mm. we think that even an under-resourced government can commission mm. valuable, authentic uh, partnerships with non-state actors. Mm. But let's be frank also in this conversation. We also know that that's not been the case mm. in some cases. and we. It's a timely conversation. I don't know if you're aware, but just two days ago, on the 21st of March, the Abidjan principles were announced, which is a group of academics, activists, and human rights organizations coming together after a long, long consultation process to sit together and define some way forward to deal with what is also the risk of PPPs which is weaker governments, or perhaps very strong governments, but corrupt, mm. who can strong arm a PPP and become very powerful in ensuring the PPP's existence, 
but for the wrong motivation. Mm. And the Abidjan principles is, is taking this on, saying we need to regulate private actors providing education to ensure that, and the question is who and how, that the motivation is the right motivation and the accountability frameworks are firmly in place to make sure we don't have what we've seen in some cases, you know, the, the government machinery being open to those that grease the right mm. palms the best. Or frankly, pr private entities whose PR machinery is so phenomenal, and that's one of the things that the private sector is very good at. They're very good at selling, by definition. So sometimes we've seen examples of the PR machinery promising so much, and then when, it, the, when the actual implementation and operationalization of that partnership starts, the, the, the components that are required are not fully in place. And then, then comes that big question, who takes on that risk, apart from the kids and their communities? Who pays the price when the PPP doesn't work? Mm -hmm. Is it the private entity or is it the government? So for example, the financial risk, mm -hmm. it doesn't pan out. Having said that, I, I hope I'm not being too negative. We, we still see, you asked us before this panel, what PPPs do you know about that really worked. Well, let's take the, the, the obvious one, the Catholic Church in Ireland. It's something we don't really talk about. It's a non-state actor that's shored up the education system in Ireland. And I'm sure we have a few people in the panel who might have reflections around that. But ultimately, I think the quality of education provided in Irish schools has been, over the last 50 years, pretty good. Um, we have BRAC in Bangladesh, who didn't go and compete with the government, but went and served those communities and those children that nobody was reaching. Street children, children in the most vulnerable communities. And they built a non-for-profit model of education where the BRAC primary schools educate thousands of children at a quality where 97% of those kids passed the government primary school exams. Do we have a problem with that? No, because those kids would not be educated otherwise. So I think, I think this panel's job, and with the help of you guys in the audience, is to also sort of unpack a bit deeper what, what are we getting at here, um, and, and for whom. And just a final point, I think with the, the Another thing we do at Dubai Cares is we, we fund research to, to find the evidence about what works and what doesn't work. And we find it difficult to find sort of the kind of magnitude of research. Perhaps the audience can help me because I'm in charge of research. Um, we can't really seem to find the magnitude of research that really could help this conversation along. Because the research is done in very small pockets here and there. It's not done at scale. And that's, okay, that was my final point, but this is really my final point. Um, <laughs> which is PPPs will, we also have to ask the question, can we scale them? Because so far the evidence we've seen is that the PPP examples we do know of, peace being one of them, phenomenal as it is, how big is it? Can it scale? So for us who want to see SGD4 fulfilled, thank you very much, by 2030, we've got millions of kids not in school, millions in school not learning. Can these PPPs figure out how to scale models so that they don't just sort of hang around in one corner of one little province or in one country only? Hmm. Scalability of PPPs, big question. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. Um, so to explain, I used to run and was the founder of a network of schools in Uganda and Zambia called PEAS. And in, in Zambia, PEAS works in public-private partnership with the government there, and they're the first free secondary schools, in uh, government-funded secondary schools. So this issue of scalability is, is key for, for PEAS. Laura, if you can wave your hand, is the CEO of PEAS now, if anyone wants to hear more about that. 
So, Minister Camera, uh, which areas within your ministry do you think might be best suited to PPPs? D'abord, il faut savoir que tout dépend, avant de répondre à votre question, tout dépend de l'objectif du pays. Je prends le cas de la Côte d'Ivoire. Nous avons décidé de rendre l'école obligatoire depuis 2015, justement pour que nous puissions avoir un très fort taux de scolarisation. Aujourd'hui, nous sommes à 92 nous voulons atteindre, comme dans les pays développés, un taux de scolarisation de 100%. Nous réservons 6% du PIB au secteur éducation-formation, en fonction de la vision que nous avons, la vision du chef de l'État, la vision du gouvernement. Mais vous savez, en toutes choses, il faut être pragmatique, il faut être réaliste. Un pays comme la Côte d'Ivoire, et je suis sûr que ça doit être la même chose pour beaucoup de pays africains, nous n'avons pas les ressources suffisantes justement pour atteindre nos objectifs. Et c'est la raison pour laquelle je vous ai dit, on fait appel euh, au secteur privé, mais évidemment cela se fait selon les règles de la bonne gouvernance, puisqu'il y a des outils de régulation. Ça c'est très important. Vous savez, euh, moi je prends le cas, toujours le cas de la Côte d'Ivoire, nous avons décidé aujourd'hui d'épouser l'ère du temps. Aujourd'hui c'est le numérique. Tout le monde sait que les outils informatiques sont très onéreux, très coûteux, mais c'est indispensable aujourd'hui. Aujourd'hui, la Côte d'Ivoire fait appel à des PPP. Aujourd'hui, grâce justement à des partenariats privés, nous faisons de l'alphabétisation numérique, surtout des femmes, parce que nous avons un très fort taux d'analphabétisme en Côte d'Ivoire. C'est vrai, il faut que tous les enfants aillent à l'école, mais il faut aussi réduire le nombre d'analphabètes dans le pays. L'un des moyens les plus rapides, c'est le numérique. Mais la Côte d'Ivoire n'a pas les ressources suffisantes. Donc, on fait appel euh, au secteur privé. Donc, euh, je voudrais dire que pour nous, euh, dans l'accroissement des capacités, on peut faire appel au secteur privé. Dans l'amélioration de la qualité de la formation, on peut faire appel aussi au secteur privé pour que vraiment dans cette dynamique que nous puissions atteindre nos objectifs qui sont d'un, euh, faire en sorte que tous les enfants soient scolarisés, mais en même temps donner une formation de qualité justement aux jeunes que nous formons pour que ces jeunes-là euh, puissent régler en Côte d'Ivoire, comme dans beaucoup de pays africains, les problèmes d'employabilité. Donc une bonne formation, notamment la formation professionnelle. Donc voici... Euh, euh, pour nous, les, les, les priorités, et je le dis, si des pays ont les moyens pour faire face à cela et atteindre leurs objectifs, c'est tant mieux. Mais le pays aujourd'hui qui n'a pas les moyens doit justement réunir les conditions pour que nos jeunes soient formés euh, comme les jeunes de tous les pays du monde, parce que nous sommes dans un monde de compétition. Nous sommes dans un village planétaire, nous voulons que les jeunes formés en Côte d'Ivoire puissent aller travailler à Singapour, pourquoi pas puissent aller travailler aux États-Unis, puissent aller travailler au Burkina, au Mali. Mais pour cela, il faut être formé selon les normes. Et les normes, nous n'avons pas les moyens pour garantir tout cela. Donc nous faisons appel au secteur privé pour que le secteur privé, avec nous, nous puissions former. J'ai dit quelque chose concernant, par exemple, la formation professionnelle. Ça, c'est important. Vous savez, comme je l'ai dit, on forme, on forme, on forme. Parfois, on, on, a, on forme selon des filières qui n'ont plus leur raison d'exister. Les curricula ne sont pas conformes aux souhaits des entreprises. Donc aujourd'hui, nous sommes allés dans une autre phase, faire en sorte qu'avec le secteur privé, nous puissions donner une formation de qualité à nos jeunes. Donc pour nous, et j'insiste pour dire que la, 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 la contribution du privé est très importante, et c'est vrai que cela doit se faire selon les règles de l'art, ça c'est important, selon la règle de la bonne gouvernance, mais c'est quelque chose aujourd'hui qui est indispensable pour des pays comme le mien, qui est un pays euh, sous-développé et qui est un pays qui a traversé de longues périodes de crise, donc euh, qui a un déficit sur tous les plans. Donc aujourd'hui, la Côte d'Ivoire a besoin du partenariat 
de, de, enfin, de, a besoin des partenaires vraiment pour, euh, pour euh, faire en sorte que son système éducatif soit efficient. Thank you very much, Minister. Um, that, that I just, just to emphasize this, this, this critical point you make about a PPP is only as good as its governance. You, you made that point earlier on. I think that's so, so important. Um, so, um, Minister Sonny, uh, amongst a certain type of international education geek like me, the Liberian um, PSL public-private partnerships become a world-famous experiment in, in contracting non-state actors in the running of schools. How's it going and, and where do you want to take it from here? Thank you. Uh, <coughs> first, let me just uh, look at a couple of things uh, insofar as the government is concerned. We will again continue to uh, appeal for support for private uh, partnership in education. As it is, you already have privately run schools. That's private partnership. But those are fee-based. The emphasis is on public uh, uh, school deliveries, which are funded entirely by governments. Resources have been limited before. They are limited now and will be limited for a long while. And that does not respect the population growth. Because population does not care whether or not you are uh, earning income. And so we must be prepared to respond to that population growth, meaning that schools will continue to, to be built, to, to be established, and skills will be delivered continuously, yet the resources to do so are just not there. I know the convention on the uh, on, on the free and compulsory basic education, Liberia signed to it. Well-intentioned, but the intention and the capacity do not match. And, and now we, that decision, fine, nobody can go back on it. So we need funding and partners to help us accomplish this. I want to thank uh, uh, Dubai Cares uh, they are partnering with us from the private perspective. Dubai Cares is supporting uh, 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 school health programs to keep the kids sighted and, and to keep their visions in place and de-warm them so that they go to school and go to school. At least the health issues are being, are being handled. And, and also uh, a school feeding. No government is able to feed two million children a day, two times a day. I mean, maybe some government, but mine just, just can't. Now, so basically, the, the World Food Program, Mary's Meal, and other folks are helping to feed the much younger kids so that they stay in school. Some of them go to school just because of the food. Because if they want to stay home, there's no food. The mommy is going to the market or someplace. So they go to school. That is an encouragement. And that has helped us to reduce the out-of-school kids except for parental and the children themselves deciding not to go to school. By far, the number of schools are concerned. Access is not too much of a difficulty now. The problem we have is delivering quality. And it is that quality that has challenged us. I'm a one-year minister. And, and, and fortunately, I, I, I've been in university for more than 30 years. So the students that come from the high schools and come to universities, I, can divide, I know them. And I know where they come from. So we are the finishing line for those guys coming from the, from the processing plant. And, and they have not been well off. So now that they gave me the tax, how do, I, how do I transform this? We cannot do it alone. However, no government will want to shift all of its responsibility to a private partner. No government, no responsible government. So it's a matter of sharing the responsibility. In fact, with the involvement of, of uh, the PP, PPP, uh, the PSL, we call our group PSL now, we, it's, it's called the, the Liberia Education Advancement Program, LEAP. But it's the same thing. Now, the, the providers under that program receive support. We are supposed to share in that support 
All of the teachers on their payroll should be paid by us. All of the school administrators have to be paid by the government. But guess what? We haven't been able to fulfill our side of that bargain. So those that are maintaining these programs have to fill in that gap. I think with expectation that maybe sometime down the road they will get reimbursed. I hope so. But if you are never reimbursed, then sorry. But we need still to proceed with it because the kids are coming along the line. Right now, we are, of course, a small population. The, the number of students that are in school now are approaching 1.8 million. And that means, and we have encouraged retention. And the fact that the kids are staying in school longer, <laughs> we, that, that's what we really wanted. But who is there to deliver the education? So I still believe that what has happened the past three years, three years are not long enough to, to actually grade uh, uh, an education platform. But there are significant changes that we've seen in the 200 schools that are managed by the, by, by the private providers, supported by, by philanthropics, and, and we thank them for it. We want for them to please continue. The time will come that a government must be prepared to take a larger portion of education delivery so that its population, because that's their responsibility, for, so that that population that comes behind us are prepared to stay on, stay the course, find a job like, like she's talking about. We are just trying to begin with effective skills program now. The, the EU is helping with that. But again, that's not sufficient. We have to invest into ourselves. God willing, we believe that keeping the relationship specifically for now in teaching at the primary level, at the primary level, it will relieve us of the problem of the failures that we see at the senior high level. And for the few that we have tested already, let me just assure you, you can test that when you have a time later on when you visit Liberia. The kids that are in those specific schools, 53,000 of them have been able to do a lot better because teaching materials are supplied, the methodologies are enhanced, teachers are maintained in classes under supervision. And it is that type of supervision that needs to be translated to the other public schools. And then we begin to see that we are comparing apples with oranges. For the time being, we almost can't compare the two because these folks are doing a lot better. We pray that those who are funding them continue to do so and we can get more. We'll give them more schools because we are approaching almost 3,000 schools and they only have 200. So if we can even give them 500 of those, we'll be happy. Dubai cares, extend our thanks uh, to, to, uh, to your organization for the kind of support we receive and, and uh, and the kids are staying in school now even more. Kids who could not see, and they were sitting in the wrong places. Some of them dropped out of school just because of that. That has changed, and that is going to change progressively from time to time. Thank you, and, and, and uh, we'll continue the conversation at another time uh, uh, as, we, as we proceed. Thank you. So we now have a chance uh, for the audience to ask questions, and uh, we don't have a huge amount of time um, because we've got a, a, a long panel there, but uh, let's start there, the gentleman there, David, yeah. Uh, thanks very much, David Archer from ActionAid. Um, I think I have to start by trying to um, uh, challenge the pessimism about the feasibility of government financing of public education systems. In the vast majority of countries, there has been chronic underfunding, but action could be taken if governments would expand their tax base in a progressive way and spend a fairer share on education. That's not happening enough. In too many cases, public-private partnerships actually end up draining public funds into private providers. So it's not actually adding resources in many cases. And I think that's a fundamental problem. There's also many uh, cases where uh, uh, where there are PPPs, they're not really extending access to children who are out of school before, and they're not actually addressing equity issues, which should be our primary So, David, can I, can I, could, um, we don't have a huge amount of time. Yeah, can you I'll be go very for brief. a question? I think, uh, well, my, one of the questions is, does, do PPPs actually increase access and equity? Because we haven't seen it in practice. 
the latest research from Eurodad uh, does show real concerns that actually the costs of PPPs are often higher, they lack transparency and accountability, uh, and uh, that the risks end up being assumed by the public sector rather than the private sector. Brilliant. And so that there's unrealistic regulation, expectations of regulations. The World Bank's World Development Report was very clear. Governments in the vast majority of low-income countries cannot and do not have in place regulatory systems and it would be better for governments to provide education themselves unless they can put in place that proper regulation in line with human rights obligations as framed by the Abidjan principles. Are people in a position to do that? Thanks, let, me just, yeah. let me just say this. Uh, yes, indeed, someone could use uh, a private partnership for their own interest. It depends on the supervision. It depends on the regulation. In Liberia now, the, 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 the PPP we met in place, it's revised, it's modified. The regulations are sterner and stronger. We have interventions. Our job in that contract, pay us our teachers. And that is important because sustainability of, of keeping schools is that of government. It is not for private providers. So if the private provider were to walk away, what happened to the school? So we don't intend for any private provider to pay up our staff. That is the largest component of school management. So I, I think you're right, you got some points, but in countries where the, everything is left to the partners to do what they wish to do, that's fine. In LIB, that's not the case. It might have been the case, but it's not the case going forward. And, and the partners themselves can, can attest to that. Yes, lady in the orange. Hello, my name is Mariam and I'm from Pakistan. My question is that, uh, what do you think that what sort of components or what sort of environment enables a stronger and efficient public-private partnership in any country? And with supplement to it, we have seen that, you know, government and public-private uh, partnership always along with something which is tangible. For instance, building infrastructures, uh, putting more money, which is tangible. But when it comes to the behavior change, we have we have never seen any such campaign, we have never seen any such example as any such model which government and private sector combines and work for that. So why it is so? Okay, who'd like to, Anna? Well, if I can just reflect on your last point or question. I mean, in Pakistan, there's some examples of private non-state actors yeah. coming in to, public, to help run public schools. And one of the most formidable um, outcomes of those partnerships, it's, it's only a few that I'm aware of, have been put in place specifically to address behavioral change, the change in behavior. For example, the teacher's attitudes about their role. The teacher's sense of responsibility for showing up in the morning on time and staying until the end of the school day and actually teaching. And there's been, the government of Pakistan has tried various models to try to increase teacher accountability, which has been difficult because the government's bureaucracy is not set up for ensuring accountability because the district commissioner of education gets replaced all the time, so there's no accountability at that level. Um, but the, there are some interesting examples coming out of Pakistan where private non-state actors who have figured out how to motivate teachers to take their job seriously have been allowed into public schools. They haven't taken over the public schools and it's not fee-based. It continues to be free public schools for, for the vulnerable, but private actors have come in to help the government at the district level change the behavior of teachers by, by, by finding ways to motivate those teachers, using non-state actors' knowledge. They've cracked that nut and they've inserted that model into to public schools. So that's the intangible stuff, but that's really what matters. And as you know, in Pakistan, there's like 6,000 schools just in Sindh that are empty. There are, you know, there are no kids. So the infrastructure issue is not the PPP thing to solve in Pakistan. It is the soft stuff. 
don't know if that helped at all. <laughs> One more question, and Sophie has already no caught my eye. So, uh, and then we'll wrap up. Sophie. Uh, Sophie Adams, I'm with DevEx. A uh, question for Minister Sunni. We talked about accountability and supervision needed of private actors. Um, obviously, the news broke last year about More Than Me, which is one of the uh, LEAP uh, PSL operators. Could you give us an update with where the government is in terms of uh, how it is supervising that actor? I really wish that issue didn't come up again. <laughs> but, uh, because every time I talk about it, it annoys me. This uh, it was, was a good intention, misuse, abused by Liberian citizens themselves. And uh, because it happened in 2014, five years ago, I really didn't want to wake it up again. The story has changed. The supervision model has changed. The involvement of, of, of the government inspectors into the, the, private, the private provider school supervision is now enhanced. Before we got on board, that was not the case. They were left to themselves to run these programs. So since then, these schools are now being specifically monitored, not only by us, because they stand the chance of losing their arrangements with us, if we find that they are unable to administer the school because we already don't have the capacity, if we had the capacity, there would be no private providers. You want to build a school, we'll give you a place, you build a school, and you run it. But if you're going to run public school, then you have to run it better than the way we can run it. And because we don't have the resources to run it the way we want to run it, we invite you to help. So you cannot misbehave. That was a single incident. It happened five years ago. I wish it never happened again. And uh, I'd like for us to close our case, really. Thank you, Mr. Thank you all. all the panel. Would you, did you want to add oui, something? Yeah, voulais, yes, the camera. Oui, s'il vous plaît. Uh, je voudrais préciser que c'est pas dans tous les... Oui, je vois, chaque, je vois beaucoup de gens en train de prendre un casque. Oui. Je, je voulais simplement relever que ce n'est pas dans tous les partenariats publics-privés qu'on qu s'attend à une contribution de l'État ou à un remboursement de l'État. Vous avez euh, effectivement euh, des partenariats publics-privés où l'État fait appel à un partenaire qui vient investir et l'État doit rembourser après. Moi, je prends le cas de la Côte d'Ivoire toujours. Euh, nous avons, de 2011 à aujourd'hui, nous avons construit plus de... 20 000 salles de classe. Nous avons construit plus de 240 collèges et lycées. Mais cela n'est toujours pas suffisant pour accueillir tous les élèves qui, normalement, doivent poursuivre leur scolarité. Je vous l'ai dit, l'école est obligatoire de 6 à 16 ans jusqu'à la fin du premier cycle. Donc, on fait appel à des, à des partenaires privés pour le faire. Mais vous avez des partenaires privés. Je vous ai donné l'exemple de la fondation, par exemple, Jacobs, avec d'autres partenaires qui nous aident dans l'amélioration de la qualité de l'enseignement, qui nous permettent vraiment de donner une seconde chance aux enfants qui sont sortis prématurément du système scolaire pour les réinjecter dans le système afin qu'ils continuent. Mais ceux-là n'attendent pas de, un remboursement de l'État. Donc c'est dire que, et c'est vrai, euh, tout cela se fait sous surveillance, selon des mécanismes, et j'ai parlé de bonne gouvernance, cela est important, parce que tout cela doit être géré conformément vraiment à la, au respect vraiment des règles. Mais ce que je voudrais surtout dire, c'est qu'en ce qui concerne le, le, le secteur privé, il n'y a pas de secteur privé euh, complètement différent ou en dehors du système global. Je vous l'ai dit, il y a un pilotage qui est fait. C'est-à-dire que le gouvernement ou l'État de Côte d'Ivoire vraiment s'occupe de l'éducation de tous les enfants, fait le suivi de l'éducation de tous les enfants, surveille et contrôle la performance de tous les enfants, qu'ils soient, qu soient dans une école publique ou dans une école privée. Et cela est important à le savoir pour ne pas qu'on pense que les enfants qui sont dans le secteur privé ne euh, sont pas pris en compte. Par exemple, en Côte d'Ivoire, nous, formant, nous, nous renforçons les capacités des directeurs d'école 
des, des, des directeurs d'école, des directeurs des études, de ceux qui sont dans le secteur privé, pour qu'ils soient au même niveau. Nous, donnons, nous renforçons les capacités des enseignants du secteur privé parce qu'eux n'ont pas eu la formation initiale comme ceux qui sont dans le public, mais afin qu'ils aient le même niveau de compétences pour pouvoir enseigner. Nous inspectons les, les enseignants et le personnel d'encadrement aussi bien du public que du privé. Donc c'est dire que vraiment c'est un ensemble qui est pris en compte et que cela est, est important. In fine, il euh, y a des évaluations qui sont faites pour que nous sachions si euh, la formation est, est adéquate, si elle est faite selon euh, les règles, pour que la chance, la même chance, dans un souci d'équité, pour que la même chance soit donnée aux enfants euh, du public comme du privé. Donc tout cela pour rassurer les uns et les autres, pour dire que le secteur privé pour nous, moi je ne parle pas des pays peut-être qui ont tous les moyens, mais pour un pays comme la Côte d'Ivoire, je suis sûr que c'est la même chose pour le Libéria et pour d'autres pays africains. On doit plutôt encourager le secteur privé à accompagner l'État pour faire en sorte que des enfants ne se retrouvent pas hors du système scolaire. Parce que c'est ça notre objectif à nous tous. Que faire pour que tous les enfants soient scolarisés Pour que tous les enfants aient une éducation de qualité Pour que tous les enfants aient la chance d'avoir un emploi Donc c'est ça l'objectif euh, 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 final. Donc pour cela, on doit se donner tous les moyens. Et les moyens, ça peut venir de l'État, les moyens aussi peuvent venir du secteur privé. Et c'est la raison pour laquelle nous-mêmes nous lançons un appel vraiment aux fondations, au secteur privé, pour que le secteur privé et l'État mettent ensemble leurs efforts pour que nous puissions atteindre nos objectifs. Thank you. Thank you so much, Minister. And uh, can I say thank you to all the panel? Um, I think it, you know, the, big, the big consensus is that it's all hands on deck. Education is critical and it's urgent. Yeah. And so we've got to work together. Um, can I ask the audience to give our panel a big round of applause? Thank, thank you. you.